Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined as ever by commissioning editor and the podcast probationary pronunciation guru and fromagier, Thea Lenardetzi. And Thea, I'm actually, we are sitting here with cheese in front of us because it's David, our producer's last show. Don't right? know how, it, how, how it's worked out that you're leaving and therefore you buy me cheese. Well, Should I, you think, I, I would you think have you... come here quicker if I'd known. Yeah. Can, can, can I do the honourable opening? Yeah, Clive, did you, did you not bring any cheese? I, I did. Realised, I'm feeling very, very. I mean, you know, you've mentioned to me about other people who have come on your program naked. I, yes, I didn't yes. achieve that, <laughs> no. and I didn't achieve. You're fully the clothed thing. and cheese-free, which is kind of awkward. Dad, I, I, I'm going to leave. I'd also like to just make one point because I feel this cheese thing. I feel I was misrepresented <laughs> last week as a cheese xenophobe, yes. when in fact some of my best friends, some of my favourite cheeses are. are Clive, is that is that British cheese or is it foreign <laughs> cheese? Can you? I, and I think it should be excluded from America on immigration yeah. grounds. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, it's not Trump-friendly cheese, there's, however there's you look no at it. no American processed cheese, obvious here. But, uh, that's yeah. lovely. Well, it's well, almost as though we were going for a sponsor or something. I know. <laughs> anyway, a cheese sponsor could be a, a runner, actually. Anyway, that's David's <laughs> final gift to you, Thea. Before we get to the show, I want to tell you a way to get cheap subscription to the TLS. Simply Google TLS subscriptions. You can click and type POD1 in the offer code tab, and you can get six issues for just £6. And I should remind you, if you want to support this podcast, please do review us on iTunes. We believe in free speech here. So tell us what you think. Coming up this week, we're going to spend some time talking through the TLS's cover piece with its author, Clive Stafford-Smith. The piece examined whether and why we are living in an age of mass incarceration. And because we haven't for a while, we're going to end the show with a poem by Helen Mort called Glasgow about a trip to the Kelvin Grove Museum. So to our cover piece then, Clive Stafford-Smith is a the lawyer and campaigner known for his work against the death penalty in the United States of America. He has saved 300 lives of those otherwise condemned to be executed by the state. He also works as legal director for Reprieve, a British organisation that fights human rights abuses committed by states. He's been heavily involved in representing those detained at Guantanamo Bay by the American government, detained unconstitutionally, often tortured, often released without charge. The treatment of these prisoners has shamed the American government. Whether the American government in its current incarnation is capable of shame is perhaps a different question which we may get to. Clive's piece this week touches upon a number of books on the subject of justice and imprisonment, and perhaps how often those two concepts fail to align. 
We're living in an age of mass incarceration, of huge numbers of people banged up, with arguments about the purpose this is serving seldom answered in a satisfactory fashion. Some figures for you. Nearly 7 million people are in prison in America, 1 in 36 adults. In the state of Georgia, the rate is as many as 1 in 13, and, and this is terrifying, 1 in 3 black men can expect to be imprisoned there during their lifetime. In Britain, we have about 86,000 folk in prison. That's double the amount as in Margaret Thatcher's time. So we are, it would seem, in an age of mass incarceration. Is it getting better? Is there hope? Well, Clive Stafford-Smith joins Theo and me in the studio to discuss all of this. Uh, Clive, there's lots for us to get through. We've got cheese, thankfully, to, to sustain us as <laughs> well, we actually, go. Can I just interrupt you? I'm more interested in the champagne that's sitting in front of me. <laughs> that's what a good is point. This? Yeah, that's the other gift from David leaving. And he, we actually, a producer should leave this show all the time because we, are, we do very well at it. We have champagne and cheese. Please tell me you told him that I was coming in yes, and he should get me a bottle. Yeah. Let's start with you and your career because looking at it, it's a fascinating thing that you started down this road and have continued down it. So is it the death penalty that initially shaped your career? Well, I, I went to America when I was 19, uh, wanting to be a journalist of all despicable things. Mm. And uh, I thought that the death penalty was this dreadful thing. And if I could just write the seminal book, uh, I could, you know, obviously tell America the errors of its ways, and everyone would see the light and that would be the end of that. Fortunately for society, generally, that book has never been inflicted on you. I wrote it when I was 19, and my grandchildren will have a chance to laugh at it at some point. But when I was doing it, I was visiting these people on death row in, uh, in Georgia. And to my horror, I discovered that people on death row in the richest country on earth had no right to lawyers, and they were meant to represent themselves. And rather than a piece of juvenilia that I was writing, I thought they kind of needed a lawyer. So that's why I went to law school to do that. So you went to law school knowing that when you got got out, you were going to, to, to represent these folk on, in, on yeah, death row. Yeah, I mean, that was the only reason. And how long after that did, because Reprieve was founded in 1999, wasn't it? And that was effectively the year after the death sentence was abolished fully in, in the UK, is that right? I mean, I know it hadn't been used yeah. since 1964. I mean, there was no link. I mean, it was perhaps abolished just because the Labour Party government was in power and they finally got around to abolishing it for various things like mm. uh, killing the Queen's swans. <laughs> but really, it hadn't happened pretty much in my lifetime. But I um, sort of started doing death penalty cases in 1984, so sometime before that. And indeed, I was thinking just the other day about, I tried my first capital trial a year after out of law school, and it's a sort of reflection on how incredibly bad the representation of people mm. on death row is, that I, who honestly couldn't find my way to the courthouse, was allowed uh, at a very young age to represent someone for his life. And, and in fact, you mentioned that, that case in, in your Yeah, case. and poor old John Pope got the death penalty, as one would expect. As I started quoting Shakespeare at the jury, and uh, as I, I was a pompous English public schoolboy, and I quoted the quality of mercy is not strained yeah. and all that stuff. And this old lawyer came up to me, and they, you know the jurors have been looking at me like I got out from under a log. And um, this old lawyer came up and he said, Clive, that's a mighty fine piece of poetry, but these here jurors don't know who Shakespeare is. And he said, uh, I used that same quote myself last week in the capital trial, um, but I began by saying I think it was in the book of Job I read. <laughs> and he won the trial um, because they thought it was from the Bible, and I lost poor old John's trial because it was Shakespeare. And what happened to Job? Well, I mean, we won his case in the end and got him off death row, but... Uh, you know, no thanks to my trial skills. How long was he on death row for? He was only on for a year and a half because, I mean, the trial was actually so fundamentally unfair it got reversed on all sorts of grounds. 
and then uh, they sentenced him to life, which is another subject of which I write. I suppose. Well, we'll get. We'll definitely get to that. How many unjust deaths? Have you seen, I mean, if you count all of them as unjust? <laughs> yes, I'm not uh, going to say there's any just deaths in this. So, that's just because have, so how many, I mean, and that's perfectly fine categorization. How many of those have you actually witnessed where you've been in the process, it has failed, and people have ended up being executed? Well, I only, I'm glad to say, six of the people I've represented have been executed. You know, that was horrendous. And uh, again, I put a lot of it down to my youth and inexperience. I mean, the first person who got killed was Edward Johnson, who was in a documentary you may have seen back in 1987 called 14 Days in May by the BBC. And, you know, I managed to get poor old Edward executed in the gas chamber. And I look back on that and I think, my goodness, you know, if I knew then what I know now, he would be alive. And uh, and that's very sad. And after they killed him, uh, we came up with pretty powerful evidence that he was innocent, which sort of makes it twice as bad. Did you watch him die? Oh, yeah. I mean, you kind of have to. And... Um, yeah, to Edward and one other guy was in the gas chamber and two in the electric chair and two in the lethal injection. And um, I, they, they didn't film, obviously, his execution because they wouldn't let him, but they filmed the practice when they had the people come to practice. And they had bred in the Mississippi State Penitentiary a black bunny rabbit that they used to gas to, to, and all of that was filmed and screened on the BBC. And, you know, it's one of those sort of enduring things that uh, there was a lot of complaints about the killing of a bunny rabbit and fewer about the killing of a black man. It's, it's funny that, isn't it? Where, uh, I've seen that with people, I see a horse killed in a newspaper after a horse racing and there's complaints about the horse and it's next to a story of child murder or something like that, which hasn't exa- ex- excited uh, such a level of attention. And um, what do you feel when you're, I mean, do you look away? Do you think I have to st- I have to look straight at this because this is what I'm fighting against? I mean, how, how, and then how do you react afterwards? What do you do to keep sane? Well, that presupposes that <laughs> yeah, I have. Yeah. It's, it's difficult. I, you know, I'm there as normally the only friend of the person who's being killed. And it is the most extraordinary thing where the government has decided to sort of sacrifice a person on the altar to this sort of mythical job, God of deterrence. So it's desperately inhuman. I, it has a very different impact. So, for example, one time when they killed Nicky Ingram, Nicky and I were both born in Edinburgh's Hospital in Cambridge, and we had become pretty close over the 12 years I represented him. And watching him having been shaved and in the electric chair and having 2,400 volts of, of electricity put through him was something that, you know, right now as I sit here I can see the sort of black and white of his body in front of me being tortured to death and, you know, that's just disgusting. Um, and at the same time, there are some of the most human moments and, you know, being there with some of the other people, you know, Larry Lonchar, for example, um, was really kind and thanked me for being there as his friend and uh, you know so those can be very human but it's it's just dis- disgusting and what's so sad is then the victim's family are very often there and they've been told by the prosecution that somehow killing this guy is going to make things better for them and I always talk to the victim's family obviously because um, they've gone through a tragedy and it's just so sad to watch them and uh, that they discovered that in fact killing that person didn't bring their loved one back and really doesn't do much good to anyone. And, and do they recognise, that, that's one of the things I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by, that you might get a victim's family who someone has died in a horrible fashion and has been murdered and then they see someone 
being themselves killed for in, in retribution for that? Do they always walk away from that thinking that actually isn't helping me? That's not. Or do you do, do people sometimes feel a sense of vengeance, vindication, closure? Is there any time do you have a where it's, you know the family would fundamentally disagree with what your reaction to it and say? I'm happy that this has happened. Do you know, um, the overwhelming majority don't get as far as watching an execution because for the six people I've watched die, there have been several hundred who haven't. And in the overwhelming number of cases, I talk to the victim's family, we discuss it. They've already sometimes been through years of appeals and obviously have reached no catharsis. And, you know, overwhelmingly, actually, they tend to come to the position where not forgiving the person but showing mercy to the person gives them much more sense of closure and understanding what happened. I'll never forget one guy I represented who had done a dreadful thing. I mean, it was the death of a six-year-old child, and I have an eight-year-old myself. But the mother came to understand that he was really, really mentally ill. I mean, honestly thought when he was strangling the poor child that he was killing his alter ego. And so she ended up insisting on testifying for us at the trial that she didn't want this guy to die. And as a sort of illustration of the perversity of all of this, the district attorney tried to take away her second child, saying she was an unfit mother because she had the humanity to try to show mercy to Ricky, the guy I was representing, which I thought was just quite bad. Why was he even being tried as as someone fit to stand trial for a capital offence if he was believed he was murdering his alter ego why was that not well i mean in that case there's a long history and you know i'd love to tell you the whole story but it's rather long but suffice it to say that at the age of um he had a dead brother called oscar lee who had been killed in a car accident before he was born and he his mother was very badly injured and she was in a full-length body cast from her neck to her ankles uh when she fell pregnant because she had a rather abusive husband and Ricky was exposed to all these drugs and all the rest of it before he was born by the and he was molested horribly himself and by the age of eight he was posting notices on the school notice board saying I am not Ricky Langley I'm my dead brother Oscar Lee now you know the DA actually said at one point that they thought he was preparing for a fake insanity defense at age eight I mean these people are deranged you know if there's anyone insane uh, quite apart from Ricky it was the prosecutor so it's just bizarre how people won't believe some of those things but that's the nature of the world in your piece you make it very clear that the whole system is sort of and especially once once someone ends up in in prison they lose rights they lose certain rights to fair appeal and things and that the whole system is is pretty much geared to protecting the integrity of, of the initial verdict well, I don't mean, you uh, love the word integrity? Yeah. Exactly. That, quote, that quote from Lord Denning really got to me that, uh, you know, he can't stand the idea that you pesky journalists should try to find evidence that the person convicted was actually innocent because that undermines the integrity of the system. I mean, how can you say that a system has integrity if it's convicted in convicting innocent people? And yet what Lord Denning says, which is the law in America too, uh, is that, you know, you shouldn't be able to challenge um, your conviction under certain circumstances, even when you're innocent. That's bizarre. And you refer to finality as that they want finality. And I think there's an American case you cite as well, which sort of echoes the Denning point, which is that, you know, in capital cases, you want finality. You don't want someone digging up inconvenient truths after the event because, or even before the event, because the system is geared to try and get a, a full stop out of this. It, it is interesting. I mean, Chris Maharaj, who's a British guy I represent in uh, Florida, and I've represented him since 1993 before I had any grey hair and 
Chris has spent now 30 years, first on death row and now in prison. He's 78 last week. And when I was arguing his case, you know, we now have six members of the cartels from Colombia, the drug cartels, saying, you know, wait a minute, it was one of ours and we killed those people. And when I was arguing the case, there are 60,000 pages uh, in his file now. And the, the Court of Appeal gave us 10 minutes to argue why he should have a new trial. And one of the judges was getting quite hostile and saying, when is this case going to be final? And I said, well, you know, what we say in the law is better that uh, 99 guilty people go free than one innocent person should suffer. And, and I guess this case will become final when you people let Chris go. And, you know, she wasn't very impressed with that and indeed affirmed his conviction. And, and he's got 30 years in prison for a crime he probably... Oh, he's got life. I mean, yeah. he's, he's not even eligible to, for parole till, till he's 101. Well, let's talk about life, because um, that's a large feature of what you, you talk about in the piece, that you say, in some ways, to make an argument against the death penalty, you've got to become an advocate for life sentences meaning life, where you can say to people, that is a serious enough punishment to warrant giving it instead of the death penalty. And as you look at that now, do you draw a parallel in cruelty between the death at the hands of a state and, and life incarceration at the hands of the state? Are they both cruel and inhuman punishments in, in, in your view? Well, definitely. I mean, I've often made the argument in capital trials to avoid the death sentence. You know, there are, there are two phases of a trial. So the first is whether you did it or not, whether you're guilty. And the second is whether you get life or death. So after you've been convicted, you, you know, the jury gets to hear that actually you've decided where he's going to die. He's going to die in prison. The only question is when he's going to die. Is he going to die in the electric chair or whatever? Or is he going to die in prison later of natural causes? In some ways, if you're convicted at age 18 or even less, and you then have 60 years stretching out ahead of you of an awful place. I mean, I don't know how many people listening have been to a prison, but some of the prisons in America are just disgusting. And there's this very populist thing uh, where we try to take away the opportunities for, for reforming people or whatever because we're just sort of hostile and think they're despicable subhuman beings. Uh, so that sort of experience, that life, is no life at all. And, you know, I made the big mistake, actually, Thea, in the case that you were pointing out, John Pope's case, where I interviewed the jurors, because you can do that in America, and not a single juror really wanted to have him executed. But they thought that if he had life, he'd get out in seven years. And if he got death, he'd never get executed. But his appeals would go on for years, so he'd maybe stay in for 20. And so they sentenced him to death, not because they wanted him to die, but because they wanted to keep him in prison for longer. And, you know, back then, because I was young and extremely stupid, I said to myself, oh, well, we've got to stop that. So, you know, I was one of the people, I'm rather ashamed to say, who started this movement towards making life mean life so that someone sentenced to life would spend forever in prison. And, and when you look at it over the last, you know, that was 1985. And so if you look at it over the last 32 years, the amount of misery that I have personally managed to create for people serving life in prison is extraordinary. It's obviously unfair for you to talk about yourself in that form. It's 1.4 billion days. You do the calculation in the piece of, of extra days in prison by making that argument. Well, you know, in my early life, I was a mathematician, and I'm not pretending that that statistic is exactly accurate. It's an estimate. But, um, but yeah, I think that by taking the sort of very punitive approach that we now take as compared to 30 years ago, my effort to make sure life meant life has meant that a lot of people have suffered a lot more. And if we can sort of take a, a step back, I think one of the most 
compelling and, and troubling dimensions of all of this is how it's all played out in the political arena. So just to take America, how much of what we're dealing with now, the inequalities in terms of black people versus white people in prison, how much of that would you trace straight back to, say, Nixon in the 1970s and his war on crime that then Reagan took up and pushed? I mean, how when will it change? Because it, it sort of appears as though it's been like an arms race as to who has been toughest on crime. It, it was a huge thing. I think Nixon, if he was alive today, uh, would be absolutely horrified by the consequences of his little war on crime. I don't think, uh, you know, one of the books that I was reviewing was an interesting one about conservatives and how, yes, this was a big thing. And back in some of the elections, it was all about the death penalty. And you had to be incredibly tough on the death penalty to, to win an election. But actually, that wasn't always true. And there were certain people like Mario Cuomo, the former governor of New York, who said, no, this is rotten, and was a vehement proponent of his view. And I think he illustrates a principal politician, a politician who's willing to stand up for his principles and defend them, as opposed to someone who's prepared to just roll over and wet himself. Uh, and yet most of the Democrats went in this rush to mm. try to sideline the, the, the whole argument with the Republicans. So they came as, became as bad as the mm. Republicans. Well, I mean, Clinton and Gore famously came out for the death penalty, and then when Clinton came into power, there was a three strikes and then you're out policy, which surely accounted for one of the biggest rushes on the on the prison system in terms of filling Well, a big part. And, and the great shame of Clinton was that in order to get elected, Ricky Ray Rector was someone who was facing execution in Arkansas, and Rector had lost half of his brain. And Clinton, rather than doing what he should have done, which grant clemency went back so he could preside over the execution and seem tough, Ricky Rector, when having his last meal, said he would save his dessert for later. And if there's anything that illustrates how brain damaged he was, that's probably it. Mm. And so that was just a result of all that vindictive. You see it also, actually, in this country with Blair, because, you know, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. He could have been a, a sort of ameliorating factor on the British prison system. But in, in funny ways, sometimes for the left to qualify for government, they make compromises to get to the centre ground. And, and it feels like justice is often an area where rightly or wrongly they believe people the people want to hear tough talk and it and to be related to some form of tough action well it's interesting you should bring that slogan up because i think that slogan was originally the labor party's effort to actually ameliorate things so you know before tough on crime tough on the causes of crime it was just tough on crime and so what they yeah. were trying to do was inject the notion that there are reasons for that and that we should deal with those reasons blair himself who i'm sorry i'm not a massive fan of uh, went far further and he started talking about rejigging the legal system to favor the victim. Now, you know, look, I don't want people to be victimized, obviously, and, and what we need to recognize here in Britain is whatever goes on here is nothing like America. In America, the crime rate is so phenomenal. I mean, I've been held up at gunpoint seven times myself. I mean, I got rather good at it. So would you like me to give some free legal advice? No, I'll tell you the tips now. The first time went very badly, and I ended up in hospital. But after the first time, I, I got quite good. And you could always spot the, I can't say certain words probably on your program. Is there anything you like? We believe in full free speech. Okay, well, the bastard coming towards <laughs> me who was going to hold me up. You always knew, right? And I was walking down the street one time, and I saw, oh, yeah, here we go again. So I crossed over the street, he crossed over the street, I crossed back, he crossed back, and then he pulls the gun up. At this point, I'm a little annoyed at it, but I've got quite good at it. So I say, look, um, 
I'm a defense lawyer and you'll need me one day. Why don't you go mug a fucking prosecutor and leave me alone? And uh, every time I got my wallet back, I mean, I look, I take the money away. I don't care about that. But I got all the cards and stuff back. And so I got good at it. And that's my advice to you is always carry money. Always give it to them. But tell them you're a defense lawyer. Tell them you're a defense I'm not sure they'd believe me. Oh, I think they might. Yeah, yeah. Don't do yourself down. One of the books you quote says, Baz Dreisinger says, uh, one day incarceration will be deemed another brutal experiment and punishment that has had its time and you're kind of op- weirdly given a lot of the surrounding context optimistic that that is probably true i'm intrigued to know what strengthens your belief that that is that is true that we one day will be looked on as a, a barbarity in, in the lines of the treadmill or, or or whatever well of course it will and it's like everything else you know when you look back over history there are certain practices in history that when they did them they thought were cool like burning witches at the stake and we look back and we say oh god that was a bit barbaric wasn't it partly because there's no such thing as a witch so torturing someone into confessing to that is a dubious use of torture if ever there was one so With prison, if I ask you or anyone else, actually, uh, what their ideal society is, they'll say it doesn't have prisons. Of course it doesn't. Now, the problem with our politicians these days is if they've forgotten how to dream. But, you know, they haven't always. And we need to get back to that because unless we have an ideal, we don't know where we're going. When we do have an ideal and a principle, then we can move towards it. We can try to persuade people that that ideal is the right thing. Now, they all agree with it ultimately. There's no one out there who doesn't agree that we want to move towards a society with without prison, without all these other things. So it's simply a question of trying to focus people on idealism. Now, of course, when we don't, what happens? You get Donald Trump. By the way, I'm an American and I didn't vote for him. I don't want to have that held against me. (laughs) But, you know, we get him, we get Osama bin Laden, these people with dystopian populist ideals. If we don't oppose those with our own, then we lose. And that's the problem. With someone like Theresa May, she has no concept what her ideal is one day she's in favor of sort of remain the next day she's in yeah. favor of brexit and so on and so forth and we need to get back to politicians who have some dream she's an arch pragmatism it's an interesting point and one hopes that what do you mean by pragmatism that's sort of when you're looking at the next opinion poll or what i think she believes for what it's worth and i wasn't using pragmatist in a sort of positive way I was, mm. uh, she believes in terms of surviving through the next electoral cycle or sure. surviving through the next set of polls or working out where the balance of power lies such that she can um, have enough people to support with what she wants to do mm. i don't think she's she's driven by idealism it's an interesting point that you raise which kind of implies we're always getting better the kind of stephen pinker argument that we're becoming a progressively less violent a progressively more civilized society which i kind of buy but is that always going to be the case? Is the future always going to be one of improvement? Could you not imagine backsliding? Well, I mean, in the last two weeks, yeah. I can't say we've been going forward. No. But, you know, actually, generally, the two, print, two things on what you say. First, you look at 1945 and 1939. Yes, we've come a long way. And I think it's incredibly hard to say that today we're worse off in the 1960s and 70s when we were going to blow the whole world up with nuclear weapons. But at the same time, the only way we keep going forward is if people with ideals keep working on those ideals. And if we don't do that, then certainly it's quite possible to go backwards. What do you see happening in with the current administration, just in terms of if we're sort of if we're getting better and there's been this gentle sea change away from mass incarceration 
what do you think about a man who is so so open about his adulation for Reagan and who I was reminded last night I was watching this documentary the 13th I don't know if you've seen that yet it's it's really interesting but um, by Ava DuVernay um, who, who made Selma and in that there's footage of, of Donald Trump and, and I was reminded that he took out a, a full page ad to call for the death penalty um, to be given to five men who are under 18, uh, the Central Park murders, Central Park Five. So, I mean, is it feasible that, that Donald Trump will deal with overcrowding in prisons by just saying we need to we need to start giving out more death penalties? Or no, is that no, even possible because no, no. of the federal state? In, in human rights, paradoxically, Donald Trump's the best thing that's ever happened because the guy's a lunatic. If you look at the... Li- I'm sorry, that's my opinion. Uh, if he wants to <laughs> cut me you're very, <laughs> very much allowed to have well, that. Well, <laughs> I, I was tweeting the other day when I said that on my Twitter feed that he had issued an executive order banning me from social media. <laughs> but look, the, the whole thing over the last eight years, we've had Obama. I voted for Obama twice. I think he's a fundamentally decent person, but he did dreadful things on human rights. He said he was going to close Guantanamo. He didn't. He substituted uh, holding people in detention without trial with killing them without trial you know and my latest obsession is the assassination program where we go around the world assassinating people just the death penalty without bothering with the formality of a trial and and yet no one would listen when obama was in office is and that in, always wrong do you think when someone because the argument i suppose in favor of it by someone obama would say this is effectively a military action we're engaged in with someone who is a member of isis they're, they're somehow at war and therefore the stakes are very different this is not a sort of domestic action this is like a, it's like a, it's like a, an attack on a battlefield rather than anything else well dare i say it that is the neocon argument that yeah. in 1758 it was declared illegal on the battlefields and you know this whole business of killing people individually in world war ii there was big debate about whether we should assassinate people and the british government said no not even hitler in the napoleonic wars there was a offer by some people to go assassinate Napoleon, which would stop the war, apparently. The British government not only said no, but turned them in to the French. So, no, it's long been a rule of warfare, as well as other things, that you don't individually target someone for just death. But has warfare got paradoxically less civilized when you're talking about suicide bombers and the like it's not being done on a battlefield where generals are conducting themselves according to a set of rules and regulations it's being conducted at sort of visceral proximity and does that change the rules of the game you know the japanese kamikaze bombers were doing that sort of thing none of this is new people pretend it's new because they're trying to change the rules and you know as far as i'm concerned what we're trying to do is establish rules that limit the barbarism of everything in the world so i'm not willing to give an inch to these neocon who want to introduce medieval things back into our system. And also, if you think of, of something like the Nuremberg trials, how can you underestimate the importance of, of seeing justice served, the process of justice, the, 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 the range of, of emotions and thoughts that people go through when they see someone being well, held Well, obviously, account? I agree with you on that. But can I get back to what you said before? Because I think it's important with Trump. Mm. What we are seeing in the first few weeks of Trump is a tremendous reinvigoration of the American left, such as it is. And for the last eight years, we've had nothing. So we're finally getting people to oppose some of these mad things. And so I view that as tremendously positive. Now, you know, there are going to be some people in the next four years, I hope not eight years, who suffer under the jackboot of the Trump administration. And that's dreadful. But I think it will force people to start thinking about their own uh, position and whether we need to be far more proactive. Myself, I'm so looking forward to suing him several dozen times (laughs) and establishing a few. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You rules. Uh, let's talk about Guantanamo Bay because we were there with Trump. Uh, Obama famously said he would close it and hasn't. Trump tweeted very early on, I think after he'd been elected, but before he became president, that he wasn't going to, to close it. Before we, we get to that, I suppose you've represented several people detained there. Very, very few people listening here will actually have a, a true concept of what that place is like, how people are being held without charge, subsequently let, let go after 10, 12 years where they've never been charged, never seen due process. What's it like? What's the experience going to Guantanamo like? Well, let me say I've been there 35 times. It is my Caribbean resort of choice. <laughs> um, but let me just give you a few of the, the sort of facts and then we'll discuss what it's really like. There were 779 prisoners that have been in Guantanamo. I've represented 86 of those and we've liberated 79 of them. And overall, we've, there are only 41 people left. So 738 have been set free. These are the people who Donald Rumsfeld Feld said for the worst of the West terrorists in the universe, uh, and clearly under the assassination program would be the people would have assassinated. We held people there based on the most dreadful intelligence. I have a security clearance. If I tell you what I've seen, I shall have to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just in general terms, uh, the, the intelligence you see in Guantanamo is such rubbish. I mean, I'll give you just one quick story. There was a 14-year-old kid I represented called Mohammed El-Gharani, who they said was a terrible terrorist financier. The way they got to that was he was a black kid from Saudi Arabia, from Chad originally, who was not allowed to do secondary education in Saudi because they're more racist than the Mississippians. And so he ended up going to Pakistan, where he was immediately sold for a bounty, because he arrived there just around 9-11. Pakistanis sell him for a bounty to the Americans, saying he's a terrorist. He's then interrogated. He speaks Saudi Arabic, and they, the Americans use a Yemeni Arabic speaker, where the word zalat means uh, money, but in Saudi Arabic it means salad or tomatoes. So they start interrogating Mohammed about, you know, when you went from Saudi to Pakistan, what zalat did you have with you? And he thought they were just vaguely 
absolutely mad. And he said, I didn't have any Zalat. All you had to have Zalat. No, 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 I could get Zalat anywhere. I needed it in Pakistan. So they immediately decide he can get money anywhere. And they say, where can you get money? And he starts listing the vegetable stalls in Karachi. No. And they wrote this stuff down. No. And that's why he ended up in Guantanamo. And it got worse later. But we got him out. How long was he in there for? Six years. From age 14 to age 20. They thought he was 26. I said, well, you know, you're the CIA. What would you do to find out how old he was? Why don't we get his birth certificate? And it took us 30 minutes to get his birth certificate. I mean, this is the sort of level of drivel that people have. And what happened, sorry, then when they, they discovered that he was 14? Did that make... No, did they didn't, they didn't put their hands up. They went through a whole evidentiary hearing that lasted three days. The federal judge was very, very conservative. In the meantime, they accused him of being a member of the London cell of Al-Qaeda in 1998, which would have meant he was 11 and he'd never been out of Saudi Arabia. And the federal judge was very conservative, but actually quite a nice chap. He was aghast and laughed at them and ordered him set free. But, you know, they weren't going to admit they made a mistake and they haven't admitted they've made a mistake with anybody. So, you know, here we are down to 41 prisoners. Now it costs, the most recent figure from this last week, is $10.4 million per prisoner per year to hold them there. I asked one of my guys, you know, what would you do with 10.4 million? And he said, well, I'd gold paint my cell. I'd double the salaries of all the guards so they treated me better. That would leave me about 9.6 million. I'd do a huge donation to Reprieve, my charity, which I'm very grateful for. Um, and then I'd still have lots of millions. I mean, this is just crazy, crazy. And Guantanamo is a fact-free zone and an irony-free zone where the motto as you go there is... Uh, honor bound to defend freedom you know i thought it was a joke when i first saw it but then i was walking into mcdonald's with the colonel who was uh, with me a very nice chap and this young soldier salutes the colonel and says honor bound sir and he salutes back and says to defend freedom soldier and i laughed because i thought it was a joke and they were very offended because that's the motto and the idea that you have a prison which is designed to deprive people of freedom where not a single person has been tried and convicted in 15 years Art uh, is just crazy, crazy. We did a, had a big piece on, on torture, which had the Guantanamo Bay Diaries uh, as part of it, which was reviewed. And it's it's extraordinary when you look at any of the detail. And I don't want to talk, we, 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 I could talk to you forever, but we're going to have to move on at some point. This notion that torture works, <laughs> which Trump has said, thankfully seems to have surrounded himself, excuse me, with people who will say, no, it doesn't. But we'll have to see whether that holds or not. No, the CIA director, Pompeo, was all in favour of it. He just said he wouldn't do it without changing the law, but he's in favour so of you, it. So how many people have you spoken to in Guantanamo Bay who have been tortured? Well, look, I, I never, you... ever thought I would be an expert in torture, and I'm sort of sad that I am. But, I mean, there's not a single person I've talked to there who wasn't tortured. And when you look at torture, there are two different things about it. I mean, number one, you can torture... I could torture you into whatever I want you to say, and I could convict you based on the torture stuff, whether it's true or false. But far worse than that, in a way, is this. I've represented a couple of people um, and tried to represent a third where torture resulted in massive changes in public policy. And the best example is Ibn Sheikh al-Libi. And Sheikh al-Libi was one of the first people detained in November 2001 in Afghanistan. He was being interrogated by the FBI, and who were using normal methods, and he was just talking to him. Because actually he was never a member of al-Qaeda, though they thought he was. He was an opponent of um, bin Laden who closed his camp down. He hated Gaddafi. So what the CIA did was say we could get this stuff much quicker if we tortured him. They were given the green light. 
They took him to Egypt, where they took electric cattle prods and things to him, and they tortured him into saying that Saddam Hussein was in league with uh, al-Qaeda on WMD. George Bush quoted that in October 2002 as a reason to go to war in Iraq. Colin Powell, to his eternal shame, relied on it in his speech to the UN. We went to war based on something that had been tortured out, tortured out of Ibn Sheikh al-Libi, which was total rubbish. So not only had we tortured him into confessing to something that resulted in him dying later in a prison in, in Libya, but we'd also tortured him into saying something that changed the course of history in a dreadful way. And that's pretty shameful, isn't it? And if, if President uh, Trump thinks that that's torture working, then... Uh, you know, I'd like to try a little waterboarding on him and see what we could get out of him. We're putting I, I'm only joking. I'm no. not going to torture the President no. of the United States. But what, you've got to imagine that if someone did see waterboarding or experience it, they'd, they'd have a... Christopher Hitchens famously well, like did Hitchens, it. Yeah. yeah, he tried it and mm. he took a view. And he actually said, if this isn't torture, there's no such thing as torture. Well, I, I actually did it to George Galloway, who insisted I should do it. When I tweeted that, a number of people said they wanted to. But yeah. no, obviously, it's a dreadful, dreadful thing. Well, let's try and end on an optimistic note. It strikes me, Clive, talking to you, you're an idealist. I mean, Christ mm -hmm. knows how you're still an idealist after all you've seen. Well, and, I thought and, you implied that I wasn't mad. I'm obviously mad. No, you are clearly, you are clearly mad. You're clearly an idealist. Um, why should we be optimistic, then? Why well, should we be optimistic? This, this crazy world where, in plain sight, people are being lifted, tortured, held without charge, something you'd expect to go on in sort of 17th century France is happening in 21st century America. Habeas corpus is arguably more under threat now. Well, there's lots of things under threat, but you know what I've always seen is that people in the very worst positions in life, uh, you just see such wonderful things come out of them. You know, and I mentioned the case of the mother whose child was killed who insisted on testifying that that my client, Ricky Langley, should be sent to a mental hospital, not to prison. So there are big battles ahead of us, and there are lots of people who want to do dreadful things. But I have an enduring faith that there are enough decent people out there who want to do the right thing, uh, that we can work together and make the world a better place for our children. And people should donate to Reprieve? Well, they should definitely donate to Reprieve because we try to make the money go a long way. But they should also come and help us. There is nobody without a skill. Uh, we're looking for a new communications director. So, you know, if anyone wants to jump ship from Times, come over. There's no one with a skill that wouldn't help us. That's almost all. I think that's all we've got time for, Clive. It's been fascinating. It's been inspiring. It's, I mean, we could do this for another hour, I think. And, and, and we haven't even got into the cheese. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm really quite no. We'll have cheese afterwards. Don't, don't worry at all. And I, I do commend the piece. It's, um, I know Thea commissioned it from you. It's just a wonderful piece of, oh, piece of work. You. And I was saying that the lawyer who he got to legal it had tears in his eyes at the end of it. And he, uh, he came up to me with his tears in his eyes. Oh, God, you never want to see a lawyer <laughs> in newspapers with tears in his eyes. And he said, I've got no legal marks for this, but I just want you to... When you see him, just tell him thank you, because I think it, 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 it profoundly moved him, and I think people listening to this will also have been profoundly moved as well. So, Clive, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Before we leave with a poem, Clive's gone now, uh, there's a great commission. It's a fantastic piece, and what an in incredible man. I mean, I, mm. I felt that we we could have done it longer, I, yeah. I think, but... What a fascinating man, and, and he's very self-deprecating. It's a very self-lacerating piece, but, I mean, I suppose if you've worked in the system for so long and you've had so many negative as well as positive experiences, it can only work out that way. You can only feel everything. 
Yeah, and maybe he uses self-deprecation as a way of coping because mm. by any standards, he's a remarkable man. You know, he's devoted his life to helping these mm. people. He's, he's phenomenally intelligent and articulate, can explain what life is like in Guantanamo Bay or a Mississippi prison. Um, maybe here, but, but extraordinary stories and, and, and the piece, as you say, is, is it's self-lacerating. But there's a kind of undercurrent of optimism, which I think we probably mm. heard just then as well, that for all the, the, the tragedy and the horror that he has witnessed, there's a, there's a strange, resilient sense mm. of positivity as which well. Which would seem to sort of go against the, the, the current grain, as, as we were saying, with Trump's administration and... And the fact that with something that I don't think we we discussed, I think you you mentioned Nor- uh, Norway very briefly, yeah. how they are always held up as being uh, you know an example of of enlightened thinking when it comes to uh, their criminal justice system. They have a maximum uh, life term of twenty one years, and that is the same for everyone. After twenty one years, you're out. And so we all celebrate that as wow. We, you know, we should aim for that. That's great. But the people are calling for for tougher tougher sentences. Well, and we were saying uh, this is before we came on came on air. But uh, Anders Breivik, who mm. murdered seventy seven people, terrorist who murdered seventy seven people, in whatever it is now, at the end of his twenty one year prison sentence, will be released. And at mm. that point, that very enlightened approach. They have four thousand prisoners in a population of five million in Norway. It's an mm. extraordinarily low number. Well, there was that interesting piece that Tom Shippey wrote for us about this the Scandinavian example, the Scandinavian dream, as it as it were, about how these, these the people who, who you know, overall it's a successful thing, the rehabilitation of people who have done life. Um, and then there are sort of four anomalies in in the system where, you know, they've gone on to, to repeat and um, how those are so deeply ingrained in the people's minds. And whether those Scandinavian principles will survive in a modern world where we're so hyper-connected. I mean, one Mm. of the points that Clive makes in his piece is that if you live in Sweden and Norway and you see American TV dramas, Mm. um, or British or, or Western in that sense TV dramas, it actually starts to infect your worldview and whether that idealised Scandinavian world, you know, Scandinavia is now um, it's receiving lots of refugees, so that carries with it all the issues that that carries uh, alongside it. It's hyper-connected in the way that we all are. Whether that Scandinavian ideal is survivable mm. in the next 50 years, I'm sure Clive would say it is. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it seems almost like the sort of thing that the rest of the world needs to catch up with before it's too late because if it becomes too late then they'll in the meantime switch back to an americanized version with tougher sentences and and the suspension of of um of rights when you're in the can and stuff like that so it, it almost feels like we need to hurry up and get to that point because otherwise we'll have we'll have set ourselves back we'll lose some, it forever it, age of mass incarceration is the piece by clyde stafford smith uh, it's in the tls this week it's a fascinating piece do please uh, go and read it I, I should remind you before we have this poem uh, to subscribe to the podcast on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back every week this year with thoughts on big pieces in the TLS and important cultural, artistic or ethical issues like today. This week's paper is now on sale with Clive's piece, plus Ferdinand Mount on a rascally Victorian adventurer who led armies in India, Rosemary Hill on the story of how Parliament was rebuilt, lots on Edward Lear, Tessa Hadley on the recklessness of Ellen Gilchrist, Philip Lepate, 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 Lepate. Well done on that miserable so-and-so. Ernest Hemingway and Ruth Skur reviews the skull of Sir Thomas Brown. You can visit our website the-tls.co.uk to read it all and learn more about our print and digital subscriptions. And do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from TLS writers, including Shahida Bari on the Hair by Sam McKnight exhibition at Somerset House. 
mean anything to you, Thea? Uh, no. No. So we, we, should, we, we should be reading that piece to inform ourselves. Hirsch Sawney on a wonderful piece on America, whiskey and national identity. We sent him out to write about whiskey in America, a sort of 800 word piece, mm. and he produced a 4,000 word piece on whiskey and national identity. Well, I've not, I've not read that piece yet either, and a few people in the office who have, everyone, everyone goes, it's a very strange piece. Very good, very strange. Yeah, it's very, very good. So I'm, I'm, yeah, my it's appetite we- is yeah, wet. It's well worth going. <laughs> But he, we did say to him, please have 800 words on whiskey and we got 4,000 words on national identity, which is brilliant. And Alex pressed on how fiction can help us understand capitalism. Do follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook and review us on iTunes. Do join us next week where we shall hopefully be talking about some combination of cowgirls and horses, Thea, do we yes. think? Yes. I hope so. I hope so. There's two pieces (laughs) on it. Uh, To play us out, we're going to listen to Helen Mort reading her poem, Glasgow. Until next time, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Glasgow. The rain I brought north with me, a Yorkshire veil, the sky like something almost overheard, or like the petrified grey bird inside the Kelvin Grove Museum, its neat impression of an owl, The stuffed beige dog that looked as if it might still howl. A rooted sentry on a tall glass case. The cheetah with its elevated face and one raised paw. The way we tried to move as if we'd not been here before. The science test we stopped to take to see if we were sensitive to bitterness. A white strip held for seconds on the tongue. A strangeness, they said, wouldn't last for good. Or how... You couldn't taste it, and I could. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.